Hello, I'm Alma Schneider. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the proud mother of four children, one of whom has Prader-Willi syndrome. And I am Iris Miller. I'm a certified rehabilitation counselor and the proud mother of two children, one of whom has quadriplegic cerebral palsy and is nonverbal. In this podcast, we discuss the uncensored truth about raising children with disabilities. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. This is Two Moms, No Fluff. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Two Moms, No Fluff, the podcast in which we discuss the uncensored truth about raising kids with disabilities. I am Iris Miller, and with me today is my partner, Alma Schneider, who is going to introduce our very special guest today. Yes, I am very happy to be here with this wonderful guest that we've been trying to get on for months and months. She's very busy, and we're happy that she's made the time for us. I'm going to put my glasses on here because I want to give you her official bio, because she is someone who who needs, we need to have you know who, who this person is and all of her accomplishments. Okay. Today, and she's sitting right here with us now, we have Dr. Priya Lalvani. She's a professor at Montclair State University. She teaches courses in disability studies and is the coordinator for the graduate program in inclusive education. She holds a PhD in developmental psychology. Her research is focused on examining the socio-political contexts which frame the lived experience, experiences of individuals with disabilities and their families. Through it, she seeks to confront ableism, something we talk about all the time, in schools and with disabilities, and uh, I'm sorry, in schools and society, and to problematize the segregation of many students with disabilities in schools. She is the co-author of the book, Undoing Ableism, Teaching About Disability in K-12 Classrooms, and the editor of Constructing the Mother, Narratives of Disability, Motherhood, and the Politics of Normal. She is a Montclair resident and a mother of two children, one of whom has a disability. And she's also a friend of mine. Full disclosure, a very good friend of mine and a wonderful person. I said a lot of things about you, Priya, but I'd like you to introduce yourself and let us know anything that you want us to know about you that we didn't mention. And welcome. Thank you. Thank you for welcoming me here. And thank you for that very lovely introduction. I, I kind of think you covered it all, especially that last part. Yes, <laughs> I am honored to be a friend of Alma's and also Iris. I've known them both in the community for years and years. Um, and you covered my professional background quite a bit. So that's about so, it. Let's begin. Okay. <laughs> I, I do have a question. I am really interested to know what drew you into the field of disability in the first place, because from all the research fields in the world, why? Why this specifically? <laughs> yeah, thanks. That, that's a great question. And a lot of people um, ask me and assume that my work in um, disability advocacy and rights is stems from my uh, becoming a mom to my daughter who has a disability. Uh, my daughter has Down syndrome. Uh, but actually, it doesn't. I um, <laughs> goes back to my early twenties um, when uh, you know I, I was I was in New York and I desperately needed a job after my my grad program to in order to um, you know keep my work visa here, and I stumbled upon this this job. Um, I had no I had no prior you know 
training or background or any information about disabilities at the time. Here I was, 23 years old. Wow. And I got a job in New York City working with formerly institutionalized adults um, that had that had been sort of, I guess, quote unquote, rehabilitated from the uh, Willowbrook Institution, if you're familiar mm -hmm. with that. And so this was my very sort of <laughs> jumping into the water start. Um, these were people that had been, you know, shackled away for much of their lives. And they were, they were adults and they were now um, after the closing of the institution in these day programs and these um, group homes. And this was the job. I had no idea what I was getting into. And quite frankly, I was extremely anxious and, um, and, you know, very quickly just grew to, to love the work. But but so, so while I was there, um, you know, it, it was there really that my understanding of issues of segregation and oppression really became like heightened. The, there was awareness. Um, just, I mean, although they were no longer institutionalized and they were in, you know, much more humane spaces, of course, I could see even as, you know, a young 23 year old, like starting to see that they were still denied so many of their common rights, you know, the right to choose, the right to choose who their friends were, their partners, sexuality was denied to them. Um, and so those were my beginnings of, you know, becoming interested. Um, I, I would say like my profound understanding of human rights was awakened in, in those centers. And um, it was only years later, you know, a decade later that my daughter was born, um, but I had worked, you know, 13 years with with the population as a you know therapist doing group work um, and advocacy work with them. Wow, well, that's so fascinating, and especially um, you know the fact that uh, people usually assume that the only reason a person and I say it because I have the exact same <laughs> background. Like I I was in rehabilitation counseling before I got pregnant with my daughter and before we knew that she has a disability and people constantly assume that the only reason someone would be involved in that space or would care about that space is if they had a personal connection and uh, I'm so grateful that you chose that uh, that space and that you are in the um, you know research field and doing so much work in academia about disability and disability rights because it's so important for our you know whole group and the whole society you know so yeah yeah, yeah. no and thank and I, I just want to add that you know there was this moment sort of was a crossroads when my daughter was born and you're right I mean people assume that the only reason to be interested in disability is because of a personal connection, that itself is problematic, problematic, I guess. You know, people assume there's no other reason to be interested. Yeah. Um, but but I have to say that when my daughter was born, um, it sort of took a different turn because although I was the therapist and I was the professional, you know, being on the other side of the table, I started to realize that there was so much ableism around me, though at the time I didn't have the language for it. I wouldn't have used that word. Mm -hmm. um, and I wouldn't have used any words because I, I didn't know what was going on. But unlike, I mean, I'll, I'll say on because my work is around this area. And I think that unlike many um, mothers who experience the birth of their child with a disability, um, something that was a little bit different in my experience was that right from the get go, my focus became not the disability, but the ways in which people were reacting to it. 
almost like on second day, I, I took a journal out and I literally started recording all the things that people were saying to me. Um, so my focus, I became hyper-focused, um, not about the disability yeah. because that didn't phase me as much. I had, you know, wealth of, you know, I, I spent my days with people with disabilities for the last 13 years, but I started to realize that people were looking at me differently. They were treating me differently. There was an avoidance of eye contact. There was a lot of, I'm so sorry, you're such a saint, hats off to you. Didn't you have an amnio? Why wouldn't you get testing? Couldn't you have made other choices? Surely there were other choices you could have made. Didn't you know? And I started to think something's going on, but I don't know what it is. And I had just entered a doc program, a doctoral program right around that time, right before my daughter was born. And um, although I was working in the field, as I had said before, Iris, um, it took a turn in that I started to decide, I decided that what I wanted to investigate for my dissertation was not disability per se, but how society reacts to the disability. And that became my dissertation and my focus for the, that's history now. Yeah. And your work, a lot of your work has influenced what we do in this podcast, which is we try to put the uh, spotlight on how things are for us because of society and the things that the community can do to be more inclusive and and supportive. It's not, it's not so much about our kids. It's about how society Mm -hmm. is dealing with them. So thank you so much for your work in that, in that arena. So we know that, you know, and in the intro, we mentioned that you have two books um, out and in your book, Undoing Ableism, you talk a lot about the need to teach disability history in schools. And I know the answer, but I want you to to explain a little bit, just because I've had so many talks with you about Mm -hmm. this. Um, Why is this needed? And um, if you could talk a little bit about the history of of disability briefly and why it why it needs to be taught in schools, why it's so important. Yeah, sure. Um, It's one of my favorite topics. (laughs) So, you know, look, the the simplest, the one line answer is, uh, and I'll give you the longer answer, of course, but the one, the the short answer is because they exist. Like, you know, people ask me, why do we need to talk about disability in schools? Mm -hmm. Why do we need to study the history of disability? Because it's a group of people that exist among us. That is the simplest answer. And to ignore an entire group of people's history and presence and value um, and identity itself is is a form of oppression, right? To to not mention disability oppression Mm -hmm. alongside other oppression, which is studied in schools, Mm -hmm. is a form of oppression, Yes. right? So that's the short answer. Um, So look, the people with disabilities are the largest minority group in the United States by any estimated number, conservative or generous, um, they they enumerate the largest minority group. They are not only a, a large minority group, but they are a historically oppressed and marginalized group. Um, the vast, I will take the risk of saying the vast majority of people, and I say that because I've taught this in my college classroom for 15 years, and it is a handful of people that have ever said that they are familiar with the history of disability that I teach. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a group that has experienced historically the denial of even the most basic human rights. 
they have been shackled, they have been incarcerated, they have been forcibly sterilized, they have experienced the eugenics genocide. Um, things like the ugly laws are, you know, they, they were on our books until two decades ago, uh, where a person could be denied access to any public space um, because of they were scary looking to people. Um, doctors who were allowed to deny treatment to babies with disabilities, and that was legalized during the eugenics movement. I could go on and on, of course, you know, um, I can't summarize, obviously, you know, centuries of disability history, though. Um, but yeah, so there's this. I just want to interject globally. We're not just talking about, obviously, about the United States. We are talking about global Absolutely. history. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a global history. Um, in the United States, though, in the Western world, there is a shameful history of the eugenics movement that yeah. is associated, um, you know, with with the, with Nazi uh, Germany and and the and the and the cleansing there. And th there's many connections. Um, so we have this very shameful history. However, this has been this does not feature in our history textbooks, alongside other you know, historical events, we, we don't study the history of people with disability and American history of eugenics as it pertains specifically to disability. Um, but I should also say that the history of people with disabilities isn't just one of oppression and, and dark, gloomy misery. It's also a rich and beautiful history of the emergence of the disability rights movement, of people with disabilities who empowered themselves, who, who forged a movement, who claimed their history, who fought for their rights. Um, many people don't realize, you know, the longest sit-in in history was by people with disabilities. The yeah. Capitol Crawl Walk, where people, you know, flung themselves off their wheelchairs and crawled up the steps of the Capitol building to demand access. That building was not accessible. Mm. Um, so there's, there's a history of oppression, but there's a beautiful and rich history of a group of people. Um, you know, many people aren't aware of the existence of the disability rights movement, that it's happening, that it's ongoing, that, so there's just so much beautiful stuff and, um, and, and, and problematic stuff that I think is, is rich and important for young people to know. Um, and the other, the other reason is that when we don't talk about disability in schools, um, and and usually, you know, the the narrative in schools, the 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 discourse is that you know children don't ask, right? They don't, you know, they don't notice difference. They're so innocent. They didn't even ask. They don't even see. Um, you know, that's very similar to colorblind ideology, which is problematized by race scholars. Yeah. You know, to say that you're colorblind is a manifestation of racism, yes. like to pretend that you don't see something instead of instead of seeing it and valuing it. Right. And saying that that difference is beautiful, mm -hmm. we pretend we don't see it and that it's a bad thing. If, we, if we're trying to not mention the word, it can only mean one thing. We are sending a message to children. When we don't mention it, we have given them a message loud and clear. It can't be a good thing. Yeah. Things we don't mention are not a good thing. Right. Um, and so for all these reasons, I mean, we don't talk about disability in schools. The only time we talk about it is in the context of special education. It's like we've decided that disability is the purview of special education. My work is around bringing disability to the purview of everyone who teaches. It is everybody's business. Just like we talk about culture, talking about culture, multiculturalism, it's part of your curriculum. It should feature everywhere in your books, in your language, in your celebrations. 
Um, and so for all of these reasons, it's really important that we bring disability squarely as a not shameful and stigmatized topic, but we invite children to understand what it is, um, to value it, to honor it, and most importantly, to understand that oppression exists mm -hmm. and we are all part of it in ways that we practice exclusion without realizing it. And the beauty of it is that we can have done work in this area, invite children, small children, to mm -hmm. be um, part of the solution, right. to invite them to be agents of change. Yeah. Wow. So uh, Priya, like more specifically uh, with regards to schools and how they introduce uh, disability and disability awareness in schools, do, can you give us, because of, this is the field of your research, like can you give us examples of how it's done uh, right now and what can be done to improve it and to, uh, I, I always think that if we continue to exclude students with disabilities from the mainstream, we are just preventing our children from an opportunity to really grow uh, hand in hand with other kids that have disabilities and those children would later become employers in the future. So this is so important what we do in the schools and I would love to hear your opinion about it and uh, what uh, schools can do to be better. Yeah, I, I, I so love that you said that Iris. Um... I mean, there's, there's two parts to this, uh, but but what you said about you know the, the future employers and, and the society that we're trying to create, I think that the the there's two things here. One is talking about disability and teaching about disability awareness, but there's also inclusive education, um, which you just made the the most important case for it. I mean, if, if non-disabled children don't get to know kids with disabilities early on. Um, how can we hope to have an inclusive society among adults? How can we hope to have a democratic society? But your question um, more specifically is about disability awareness in schools. And um, so unfortunately, and things are changing, but your most typical go-to ways that schools, I hate to say, but often check off the box mm -hmm. for disability awareness and the activities that are typically done in most schools um, and I work with teachers day in and day out, and this is, you know, <laughs> this is what they tell me. Um, number one most popular awareness activity in the United States, by the way, is the so-called simulation exercise. That activity where children are asked to put blindfolds on their eyes and then try to do things to pretend they are blind. Um, you know, they put cotton balls in their ears to, to try to see what it's like to be deaf, or they, they put socks on their hands. And then they're asked to like button their coat to see what it's like to have cerebral palsy. Um, and this is, by the way, the most common, not just in schools, but in, in universities and colleges and organizations, um, corporate, like, you know, the disability sensitivity event usually involves some kind of let's pretend we have a disability just to see how hard it is. And then we can have empathy. Um, that activity has been so opposed by um, disabled activists for well over a decade now. They have so um, voiced their opposition to that kind of activity. It is considered akin to, you know, blackface really. Like you don't, you don't don the costume or you don't pretend to be someone to see what it's like. Not that it can give anybody any understanding by closing your eyes of what 
I can't pretend to know, you know, what what how a blind person lives their life um, by closing my eyes. <laughs> and so what it does is it misinforms children. Really, it actually it actually engenders fear. Yeah. So what you're doing is you're teaching them to feel out of control and helpless. And in that, we've actually taken a moment to teach them ableism, actually, instead of disability awareness. Because what they get from that lesson is, wow, it's really hard. Disability sucks. I mean, you know, not in those words, but obviously any child who's expected to walk around the day with socks in their hands and try to write yeah. is going to get the message that disability isn't all that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an awful way to live. Um, what we failed to teach children, which would be a better way to do it, um, is to teach them about access tools. Here are some different ways that people access the universe, mm -hmm. right? Um, not through seeing, but through using this device. This is Braille. This is a guide dog. This is an FM device. Um, these are some mobility tools. This is a wheelchair. Let's take it apart. Let's study it. Let's look at this. Um, so the idea, so a better way to do it is to, I mean, there's there's a number of things you could do, obviously. And then you have a lot of parents and I'm a parent too. I've done it too. I've gone in, you know, to do the little bit of awareness. Uh, not this, I've not done this, but I'm saying, you know, we, as parents, many of us might be familiar with the idea of going into the schools. You talk to the kids. Uh, I think another thing that we, sh we should really be pushing for is, is to have disabled activists come and do that kind of thing. It's mm -hmm. usually the parents. And the reason for that is because we're there and we want to do it. Yeah. Um, but it really should be more exposing children to, to adults with disabilities um, and activists and advocates and people who are in their community, not just exposing them to like the heroes. Oh, Helen Keller. Yeah. Um, the local baker, <laughs> your yeah. mayor. It yeah. could be the guy at the library. These are people like, so children should learn that disability isn't Helen Keller. Disability yeah. is your neighbor, your friend, the person in your class. Um, so these are some ways you wanna sort of open up the dialogue. And, and also we wanna ask, we allow children to ask questions. What do you want to know? Ask what you want to know. Let's open it up. Um, disability history, of course, I already talked about that should be included, but um, all of this should not be a separate disability awareness day, just like anything else shouldn't be a, a day, right? right? Um, but schools are still doing it as a separate event, autism month. And right. what do we do for that? We blow bubbles. I'll live a hundred years if I did and never figure out what blowing bubbles is gonna do to make a better society and get people to understand neurodiversity um, and, and, what, and, and what coloring a puzzle piece is supposed to do for children to understand autism. Instead, let's let's bring in adults with autism. Let's learn about different ways of, of being, different brain, um, and mostly access tools so that children can understand that when we remove the barriers to learning, to playing, to participating, and to friendships, and to communicating, mm -hmm. then actually we could, we could all be a community here. Um, and people with disabilities can actually achieve things if we provide them with access. Yeah, and and you mentioned the mothers. Um, you know, it, it's it's so true. You know, Lincoln, my son with the disability, is now eighteen, and anything that's done 
for the school that has to do with disabilities is always done by the mother. So um, I'm wondering what your, uh, if you could just talk a little bit sp specifically about the role of the mother in caregiving for a child with a disability and historically how mothers of children with disabilities have been, have been viewed in society. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll, I'll do the first part of that question first, um, because that's very much my, um, my work and my interest has always been, like I said, ever since my daughter was born, I started to do my dissertation around mothers and their experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, and ever since then, I've been interested in the stories of mothers. Mm -hmm. um, and there is, an, I think a lot of us moms, uh, parents, uh, even broadly, um, may not even be aware that there's, while there's a history of people with disabilities, there's also a history of parents of people with disabilities. We have a history and many aren't aware of it mm -hmm. that dates back. And I can only speak of Western um, civilization and cultures because that's what I've studied. Though, of course, every, every part of the world will have their own historical um, trajectory. But dating back to the earliest Western civilizations, I would say, um, you know, the early Greek and Roman civilizations, right then uh, there was a belief that if a child was born with a disability, it meant that the parents had displeased the gods. That is where the story begins, really. I mean, I'm sure even before that, but um, this idea begins there that the disability is caused by something the parent has done, particularly the mother, the mother blame, mom. <laughs> has done something back then it was that the gods were displeased you know but ever since something then, something bad something bad we didn't do something good to get this we did something bad no, we did something bad and disability was a punishment so back then the treatment for disability was infanticide you left the child you know to die in the woods or wherever right mm -hmm. and that was sort of like a sacrifice you did because you had done something bad um you know moving fast forward to the 18th and 19th centuries um, there was this idea that um, parents of children with disabilities were unfit, genetically unfit people, um, that they were psychologically, emotionally, uh, and, and physiologically of genetic, uh, genetic defective genes. Um, and that actually became the rationalization for the institutionalization of children with disabilities. The idea that the parents were not fit, they could, they sh the children should be removed and become uh, wards of the state mm -hmm. became the became the sort of the rationale um, that the American Medical Association signed off on yeah. that all babies are better off in these institutionalized facilities um, because they could not. And then you know the biggest <laughs> the the number that Freud did on our our group cannot be overstated because psychoanalysis um, and Freud. Freud championed the idea that the mother, that's, that's where parent blame squarely shifted to mother blame and has remained there. Mm -hmm. um, Freud explicitly states um, that the mother is of the child with a disability is too irrational, too emotional, too guilt-ridden, too clingy, too overbearing, too... Everything hysterical, um, hysterical um, you know, filled with so much grief and guilt, uh, smothering mm -hmm. that 
In fact, Freud advised therapists to not engage with the mother. Isn't that interesting? Do not engage with the mother. Engaging with the mother will only hinder the progress of the child. And so this is a really problematic history that 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 the legacy of which has remained, even you know, um, and the the refrigerator mothers and people might be familiar with that, the the whole um, um, Iris, I see you, um, yes. To me and other moms that are listening or parents that are listening and do not know what it means. <laughs> okay, yeah. So in the mid-20th century, um, sort of fueled by, again, the psychoanalytic theory, there, there was a, um, a theory put forth and championed by Bruno Bettelheim that autism was caused by cold and frigid women women who were unable to form a bond with their child because of their frigid, cold, um, emotionally distant, unavailable nature had caused, that, that was the cause for decades. That was the cause of autism. And they were called refrigerator mothers, right? Because they were cold people, that was the nickname. Um, but this was, this was the going theory. Um, I cannot even, and I mean, I've sat with this so much. Uh, by the way, there's a great documentary called Refrigerator, Refrigerator Mothers. It's kind of dated now, but you should check it out. Um, you know, you just have to wrap your mind around this idea that countless women were told this condition is because of your psychological and emotional damage, that, that these women, that these lives were lived in that way, of these women thinking what, this is what I've done to my child, you know? So all of this, than, I'm, I sorry to, I'm sorry to interject, but it was more than autism. Wasn't it schizophrenia as well was considered to be from refrigerator mothers? Uh, yeah, there might've been some, I mean, yeah, I, I think it was mainly autism, okay. but, um, but back then there were like schizophrenia and autism was often talked about in the same, same realm. in the same okay. categories because autism wasn't really understood. Right. And so children with autism, yeah, you're right, Alma. They, they, there was some confusion about what autism was, and there was uh, some overlap with schizophrenia, they, they thought. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, all of that is the history of mothers. And my my work is is about mothers of children with disabilities, and I'm, I'm very interested because you can't really um, do work with mothers um, unless you really understand the history of where we've been as yeah. a group. Um, because that legacy, no one would say that anymore. No one calls us refrigerator mothers or like institutionalizes our kids. But I think it should be acknowledged that the legacy of that has lived even today. Mm -hmm. When you look at the research with um, you know professionals and professional discourses, even you know social work, psychology, there is a legacy of the mother in denial, mm -hmm. the grieving mother, the oversmothering mother. The mother who's demanding too much, the mother, you know, there's this, I did a study with teachers actually mm -hmm. um, on this very topic. And it was really interesting that so much of those themes were there. Mm -hmm. And you, you have to ask yourself how we can have equal relationships with educators mm -hmm. um, or other professionals mm -hmm. if there is still a remnant in the professional's mindset right. that, that this group of mothers is somehow just to emotional grief ridden and yeah. therefore fully can't be you know you can't trust them because they're so they're just dealing with their grief and their denial denial is an interesting psychological tool by the way 
-hmm. Anytime I disagree with you, Iris, let's say, I can, if I position you as someone in denial, then my viewpoint is right yeah. because you're in denial. Mm -hmm. And that is a psychological tool that's used to cast mothers as in denial. If they're in denial, then very manipulative. Then you won the game. And you're reminding me, just as a you know, someone who studied psychology in, in college and in graduate school, all of the videos for all of the studies, I don't know if I've ever seen a man in them, a dad. All of the studies show how the mother is interacting with the child. And I've never thought about that until this conversation right now. Yeah. So yeah, it's all about the mom. <laughs> it's all about the mom. And the mom has play, has taken the brunt mm -hmm. of the blame, but has also taken the brunt of the caregiving. Yes. The, the yes. mother has been disproportionately. I mean, there's no offense to dads. Big <laughs> um, dads, were, you know, many very, very, very involved obviously i shouldn't have to say that um but mothers disproportionately do caregiving work not just for disability but mm -hmm. in every context um but particularly with disabilities you asked earlier um iris about the role um mothers of children with disabilities take on the role of advocate again disproportionately and and in all of my work and research with mothers I find that mothers feel that without their advocacy, which is unfortunate, right? Like mothers feel like without their advocacy, their children will not gain access to the things, um, their rights, their educational rights, services, resources, friendships, a place in the community. These are the areas that mothers feel that their advocacy is needed. And, and my work is particularly around inclusive education. Mm -hmm. And I find that when a child, particularly a child with labels of intellectual disability, um, developmental disability or autism is in an inclusive education setting, chances are it's because of the advocacy of a parent. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be that way because we already have the laws yes. that, that should not have required that advocacy in the first place. Yeah, <clears throat> Priya, <clears throat> sorry about that. Uh, this is uh, like this whole conversation about the mothers and the role of the mothers is we're sitting here, the three of us, I know we personally find truth in what you're saying about our efforts with our own children. And uh, I really want to now ask you about uh, your book, uh, Constructing the Mother, and if you can tell our listeners a little bit about the book and uh, and why you wrote it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, thanks. I Yeah, that. That book has been my passion. And I, I like to say born the day that my daughter was born, really. Oh, there oh, it is. Here it is. And I just wanted to mention something for, for the audience that listens and can see us, that the uh, constructing the mother, the M is in parentheses here. So it's like also constructing the other. And that's I, I really like this uh, wordplay here. And it's so meaningful. Thank you, Priya. And if, you watch, and if you're watching the video as well, Priya drew the portrait that's on the cover of the book. A little known fact, little oh, trivia wow. about the book. When I was 25 years old, little knowing wow. that it would appear in the book later. Wow. Um, but another fun fact before I answer your question, Iris, is that the person who wrote the foreword to my book, Linda Ware, who is a senior scholar in disability studies, um, and those of you, if you pick up the book, but um, 
interestingly, Iris is mentioned in it, and I didn't know that. <laughs> what a small world. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, That's I had cool. no idea. I had no idea. She wrote about a mom. Yeah. Uh, turns out it was Iris. But uh, so yeah, many... and he doesn't know me and you didn't know me back then. So I yeah. somehow ended up in the intro to your I book without totally forgot about that. That <laughs> is a fun trip. There's a lot of fun trivia about this book. Yeah, I'm telling you, really, you somehow ended up in the book and I didn't wow. know that it was you. And she didn't know you. She just read about you and she mentioned it in the foreword. And wow. Alma said, you know, that's Iris. That's <laughs> So anyway, why did I write the book? So as I said, um, I'm, I've been interested in mother's stories. I'm also interested in stories. First of all, I should just take a step back because stories, storytelling, um, you know, as a psychologist, I'm very interested in narrative identity. And it's a, it's a form of um, how we construct our identities through the stories we tell, mm -hmm. right? Each time we tell a story, um, we change something in the world and we construct our identities. So it's a form of um, research as well that I've used in the past, narrative research. Um, but anyway, I've been interested in the stories of mothers because as I said, this is a group that has been historically marginalized, pathologized, oppressed. Um, and so, and the, their story, the group, this group's story has been told from other people's perspectives, historically. The psychologist, the social worker, the doctor, the, you know, the psychoanalyst, um, even the educators. Everyone's got a story and the story has always been told from the professional's perspective. Um, I'm interested in the story from mother's perspective. And I embarked on this journey because I wanted to know how mothers would tell their story. Now, you might think there's lots of books about moms who have kids with disabilities and they write the books as well. There's, there's plenty of those, I'll grant you that. Mm -hmm. um, they are stories about how mothers experience their children with disabilities, their life stories, their memoirs. You know, there's a whole genre of that. There's, there's many of that. I didn't want the book to be about that. I was not interested, not that I'm not interested, <laughs> but um, that I didn't want mother's stories of how they raise their children or what it's like to be a mother of a child with a disability per se, because there's many of that. I wanted their story of how they construct their identities as women, as mothers, in the context of a society in which their child is devalued. I didn't want to know about how hard it is to have a child with a disability or what you do on a daily basis. Like I get that. I, I, I understand there's a need for that. I'm not knocking that. There are books about that. I wanted to know, how does a mother come to understand herself and her place and the place of her family and the place of her child in the society, in the ecology, given that the message that one is receiving is that this child is assigned lesser value, is mm -hmm. not a desired child in society, and the message is clear. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to understand how, how these women have like, are they aware of that and how they respond to that? Um, so every story in that book is about how these women respond to ableism. Um, and, and not only that, but they are push, I call them pushback narratives. They are pushback stories. And like, how, how do women push back against, or do, or do they try to, to push back? Mm -hmm. 
against the message that society is giving them about the otherness of their children and their family, about the pity and the grief and the sadness. And what, what do these women do to position, reposition themselves? Um, and I like to say to, to claim their motherhood. Mm-hmm. How do they claim? Uh, because in all of my research and before the book, the book was sort of a culmination of like a decade of work with mothers. But um, one thing that I found in all my work and my research with mothers was that mothers struggle to reclaim access to the category of motherhood mm-hmm. because they've been positioned outside of normal motherhood. Yes, They're, they're special moms. We're different moms. Mm-hmm. We're exceptional moms. We're something other. Yes, We're just not moms. So even um, if it's positive, and so I was interested in how it's other. And that doesn't exactly. Matter. Exactly. Even if it's positive, even if it's like, wow, you're such an amazing person. You're such a saint. I mean, that's really reverse stereotyping. You know, it's like, even when you're saying something good, mm-hmm. it's still problematic because when you say that I'm such a saint for being a mom to my daughter, then you are making a very powerful statement about my daughter. Yes. Not yeah. about me. Mm-hmm. You made a claim that my daughter is not actually a desirable person that someone would want to raise. And so the book really um, is a collection and uh, from, from of women from all, appro- and it was interesting, like they're all approaching the, the topic of disability and motherhood from a very different angle. Mm-hmm. You know, birth, adult, um, it, it, all different ways, um, how, they, how they look at access mm-hmm. and how they strive for access and inclusivity in this yeah. world. And it's a, it's really an amazing book. It's so empowering. Um, you know, it could also be called badass moms. Because, <laughs> you know, you leave reading that book, you finish reading the book, you're like, damn, I'm going to go out and change the world because it needs to be changed. So it's really a wonderful book. And I'm so glad that you're using it in your, to teach um, people who are going into the field because it really will give them a, a more a more fair um, representation of, of, of mothers with kids with disabilities. So you're really changing the conversation with this book. It, it's really phenomenal. Um, Thank you. I like badass moms. I might have to use that. I as think a, you as should have that as like the presentation title. Yes, <laughs> yes, badass moms. Um, Something, you know, something that has to do with moms that is a very touchy subject, uh, Iris and I have found in the disability world, we've seen in social media and um, articles that there are, there seems to be a lot of conflict between uh, adult people with disabilities and the parents of children with disabilities and around uh, disability-related issues. There's a lot of conflict around there. Can you speak a little bit about why that is and if you have any suggestions to resolve maybe some of the conflicts? Because it's 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 very unfortunate that there are these conflicts and they need, they need to be dealt with because we're all trying to get to the same place and it's kind of a hindrance to getting there. So I have a personal question about that, but also I'm sure everyone in our audience is, is interested in, in this topic. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And you're, and you're right, Alma, because, and it is unfortunate yeah. uh, because, and there's some animosity, you're yes. right, between, um, and I, I shouldn't, it's not a broad across, you know, uh, but there are people, there are adult activists with disabilities um, 
who take issue with some of the uh, practices or discourses or language that are common among um, the parent group. And I, and as you said, it is unfortunate because um, we are all trying to get to the same place, right? And it shouldn't be. We're, and I've been, my more recent work has been around trying to bridge that gap. Um, but so what are some of these points of contention, if you will, between these two groups? Um, you know, broadly, there's issues of fixing and curing versus identity and value that I call that issue number one I, mean, I don't have all of it written in front of me but um, one big thing is the conflict the tension between fixed cure versus value and out and proud mm -hmm. so there's your one issue whereas many disabled activists feel that parents are very very focused and I mean listen this is not about blame game and like anyone who's listening Listen, I'm a mom too, I get it, um, you know, so, and and yes, of course, some of that work, you know, it's very nuanced, these kinds of conversations, right? But often as parents, people become focused on trying to fix the disability at every cost. Mm -hmm. And what becomes obscured is that in that effort that people are trying to just fix it, cure it, make them walk like everyone, talk like everyone, you know, don't rock like everyone, don't sway like everyone, don't. Mm -hmm. um, instead, disabled activists feel that maybe some of that work could be put into changing the world in terms of access, mm -hmm. acceptance, value, um, really working towards creating a world where, where, where people with disabilities are accepted for the ways they are instead of trying to normalize them. Um, particularly the conflicts arise in the autism community, I would say, mm -hmm. um, from my understanding and the people that uh, I, you know, I've, I've read and, and work with. And um, in the autism community, the adult um, autistic advocate and activist community, there is a, a opposition to ABA. I'll just put mm -hmm. it out there. That is often seen um and again i'm just i'm bringing bringing these issues to you right can you um, just for our audience uh members who don't know what aba is can you just explain what yeah, it is um okay so applied behavioral applied behavioral analysis which is a common uh therapeutic practice um usually for children um for autistic children in schools um where children are given rewards to you know progressively try to do things as close as non-disabled people like you know try to do the kinds of things talk in certain ways make eye contact mm -hmm. um, and for every step they are given a little reward so some autistic activists consider that to be a little bit like you know dog training or like training mm -hmm. uh, but more broadly what what is opposed is this idea that that a person needs to be normalized. So that if a child is swaying, rocking, flapping, um, the question is why does one need to try to, you know, um, Suppress. change that? When in fact, the argument is that autistic people learn best maybe when they might be flapping. Mm -hmm. So in fact, what we're doing is <laughs> we're taking away the thing that helps them. Mm -hmm. And forcing them to do things in a way that is not 
comfortable or natural um, and causes a lot of pain, actually, mm -hmm. to imagine if you were being rewarded to to sit and, 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 and be in ways that are not that, that are not you. And, and you're forced to do that. You're forced to do that. Many people have likened that to gay conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. where people were rewarded and given aversives yes. to, to sort of behaviorally shape their behavior. Um, so anyway, that's just a, a, a hotbed topic, but I'll, I'll, I'll bring it to a little bit less controversial, even more, more simple everyday things. Uh, another point of contention, quite simply, is language. Less controversial than yes. the ABA discussion, yes. but um, parents of children with disabilities and also caregivers, professionals, therapists, prefer the language of special needs, exceptional children, differently able, um, and various other euphemisms that in the disability rights community is not appreciated to my understanding. And the preferred terminology is disabled or disability, just like any cultural group. The argument is that members of that group should be the ones who, whose opinions matter the most in terms of what that group should be called. Right. We would not allow other people to weigh in to any other minority group, correct? Mm -hmm. yeah. But yet in with this community, um, we speak for our children, um, educators speak for our children, therapists speak for our children. Mm -hmm. Um, disabled activists are there and have very strongly voiced what their preference for their their community right. should be. Um, disability and some use disability with uh, you know big D and small D, just like there's big D deaf and small D deaf. Big D is used to refer to the community, just mm -hmm. like I am Indian, Indian right. with a capital I. Right. right. Um, so to say I have a disability would be small D, but I am disabled, like a cultural um, group right. with big D. So, you know, these are, there's so many little things like that. Um, the use of simulations, which again, many parents continue to, to, to favor. Uh, and listen, none of these things, as you said, Alma, it's unfortunate because we're all really genuinely, I would be hard pressed to think of a parent who would wake up in the morning and try to do the wrong thing right. for their child. Of course, right. I'm not suggesting um, I should reiterate that like this is not a critique of of parents or moms like I get it we, we're trying to do what we're trying to do and sometimes you don't know what you don't know mm -hmm. but these are the tensions unfortunately that exist mm -hmm. um, and I think it it would be good if we all we and I include myself in this right um, just learn about some ways that we can become on board with with an ally I call it an allyship model um rather I don't call it an allyship model but um you know moving from advocacy model mm -hmm. to allyship it's very different yes, right. um, allyship which is used in the LGBTQ community right yes. to be an ally mm -hmm. what does that mean it means you don't speak for the group but you you're trying to support right what yeah. their agendas are exactly exactly which is why by the way but we'll give you a little uh, info about the future of the Montclair Friday group that we run. We are going to start a an ally, an ally group along with it, or once a month having allies come in. So I love it. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's been in the works for a while, but it's going to happen this year. I love it. <laughs> Priya, I, I, uh, what can I say? This has been such, such a fascinating conversation. I have to tell you, as they say, knowledge is power. And I feel so empowered by just listening to you today and learning so, so much from you. And we had a few more questions, but because of the time limitations, we can't ask you all that we want to learn from you today. If you'll be kind enough to show up on our podcast again, we'll be delighted. And uh, I just before we finish uh, today, I wanted to ask you if you have anything that you would like to add uh, just before we, we close the conversation today. Um, yeah, okay. I'll just say a couple of things that might be that's helpful for, for parents. Um, you know, talk about disability in your homes talk about it out loud, proud, um, talk about it not in a hushed tone, talk about it like it's a beautiful and valued form of human difference that our children bring. Um, and I think that the most important thing that we can do for our kids really, um, and we do so much, but here's something, try to connect our children to members of their community that are adults, that are role models, um, so that they can, so that they can see, mm -hmm. um, you know, what empowerment looks like, because they're so used to a stigmatized dialogue. Children pick that up. They get it. They know that this is stigmatized in society, that this is not a good thing, that it's shameful, that people pity them. You know, the best thing we can do is to empower our children to sort of claim it, to claim their disability as an identity, not as a illness but as an identity marker, value it, talk about it, and connect to adult members of that also have your child's disability. Um, adults, particularly activists, who can show them uh, a way that it, uh, you know, sense of pride, disability pride. Yeah, and that's, you know, and I, as I always do, and as Iris and I always talk about, I think before moms, you know, and parents are, can be able to have that open conversation and have their children feel pride in who they are, the parents have to first get on board because society is against them in this. This is going against the grain to have this pride because this doesn't exist in society for the most part. So we have to get to a place where we feel comfortable and have our needs met as well, meaning, and we have all sorts of episodes about this, about finding your community, finding other parents who are going through this so that we have the support of each other to be able to make the changes and make our kids feel okay and proud of who they are. So it's got to start, you know, going back to the moms, it always goes back to the moms and the dads. That needs to happen to feel okay first, because society's hmm, not really going to be assisting us. We need to, we need to galvanize um, but first, really get to a place where we feel comfortable. Yeah. yeah. And thank you to you both for the work that you're doing to create community. Thank uh, you. To, thank to you. have a place of belonging for for moms and parents. Parents, yeah. Bria, thank you so very much for joining us today. I, I really, I learned so much from you just in this no, even one though session. Talk, yeah, even though we talk all the time, I've learned some new things today that I am... I'm going to take to heart. This has been very meaningful. We really appreciate your work. And uh, we will let people know where they can purchase your books if they're interested, because even though it's a textbook, 
Um, I think this is a great book, especially the uh, Constructing the Mother. Um, it's in my library and I'm, you know, I go back to it periodically. It's just a, a really special um, view into, into, into badass women. So <laughs> thank you so much again for, for spending the time and we would definitely love to have you back on in the future. If you'll have Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. Bye-bye. For more information, please go to www.twomomsnofluff.com. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a five-star rating so more people can hear it. Thank you.